welcome back to our show Dreams, Passion and Your Hong Kong Story. Today we have with us a very dynamic and a versatile architect, someone who is highly regarded in Hong Kong for his humanistic style of design that he's adopted. Let's meet Bryant Liu, Vice Chairman, Ronald Liu and Partners. Hello, Bryant, and welcome to our show. How are you? So Bryant is the Vice Chairman of Ronald Liu and Partners. Ronald Liu and Partners is a very prominent architectural and interior design firm of Hong Kong. Bryant is the second generation architect. After graduating from Cornell in 2000, Bryant joined his family architectural practice and under his vision and dynamism, Ronald Liu and Partners grew from a 100 staff firm with one office to a 600 staff architectural practice spanning five offices in China and Hong Kong. Besides being a very successful business person, Bryant is a very versatile personality, very fitness enthusiast, he's a triathlete, he's a doting dad of two lovely boys. Let's talk to Bryant and find out how Hong Kong has played a role in his life. So Bryant, tell us, you do so much, you are an amazing business person uh, <laughs> and you're a triathlete. We often see you biking mm -hmm. and you know, you are so involved with the Hong Kong charity scene, mm -hmm. so involved with the Hong Kong cultural life. And you are a very hands-on dad. What is the secret of your never-ending energy? Sleep. Really? <laughs> and, and passion, I think. Um, when you're excited on, a, uh, on something that has a purpose and it excites me and energizes me. And, and lately I've learned that sleep is equally important. So balancing everything, I think it's a, it's a challenge, but it's, it's rewarding. You know, you, uh, you, did you decide to become an architect very early on in your life and uh, was coming from an architectural background a reason for joining and why? Well, it's, um, my father uh, went into architecture after, for his university and then he came back and opened his own office in Hong Kong. And, you know, being an architect back then, the, the firm was very small. So in the morning, he would go and have meetings with clients and then at nighttime, he would come home and start drawing. In the old days, there's really big drawing desk and you know, all, the, all the equipments are there, the scale rules. So I grew up in that environment. And when I was young, you know, naturally, you say, oh, Daddy, what are you doing? So he would put me on his lap and explain to me the drawing. So this is the door on the plan and this is the window. So very early on, I got educated in that language. Mm -hmm. And a small story, it's, when I was in kindergarten, uh, I think third grade, uh, the teacher asked us to draw a picture of our room. So everybody draw, you know, colors and beautiful. And I took a black crayon and started drawing. When I finished, the teacher was in shock. Said, what is this? So she called up my mother and said, Mrs. Liu, please come and pick up your son. And my mother showed up and she explained today's sort of assignment and showed them my drawing. And my mom laughed. Basically, I drew the floor plan of my room. Really? Yeah, so at a very young age, I learned how to visualize space in two-dimensional, but I think it's also so in tune of what your dad is doing, yes. and, and, and you naturally, you know, dad is always your hero, right? So that sort of, I think, he planted his seeds fairly early without knowing, and I slowly grew uh, 
loving the, the built environment, building spaces, mm -hmm. and you're more sensitive to the design aspects of it and how building and spaces impact people. So when I got older and I decided that to pursue that as my uh, profession and career. So, so tell me, you know, you joined your family business at a very young age and then you grew it very rapidly mm -hmm. in China. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the challenges that you faced uh, joining at such a young age and growing the business so rapidly? Well, after graduation, I worked in New York for two years and then um, right around 2000, I, I came back. And back then, uh, I think, uh, well, I, I wanted to be in Asia because I believe that's where the future is going to be. And furthermore, um, what drives me is when I was studying in the U.S., um, I saw a lot of great firms and they do very well and they hire great talent, from, a lot of them from Cornell. And I was looking at my classmates and they're good, but you know, maybe they can be, you know, everyone should be just as good. So anyway, so afterwards uh, when I came back, I thought, well, um, how come there are no well-known practice in Asia and particularly from Hong Kong? And I want to change that. And I believe uh, from 2000 onwards, the future, the new world stage will be China and this whole region. So mm -hmm. I came back and wanted to sort of contribute back to Hong Kong and, and maybe make a name for uh, the firm. So started on that journey and then, uh, st then started to go to China and build the business up. And that was quite challenging. Uh, when I went there, a lot of our um, competitors told us that, oh, you're late. In fact, it's true. Back then, a lot of our competitors went in the early 90s. Uh, our firm never did. So when 2000 come along with Asian financial crisis, we're kind of forced to have to look beyond Hong Kong. And so uh, we gather up and ask, oh, let's go to China. Sure, who's going to go? None of the directors put their hands up. So I said, fine, I'll go. So 20-something started then going to China. And the first thing I did was, you know, back then they still have a lot of Canton Fair, a lot of different... Uh, uh, industry fair. So I start signing the booth. Yes. Design the booth myself. Fly up there, and stand there from eight till four, four days a week. Uh, business cards, explaining different projects, and hopefully getting some business. And you know, it's very humbling yeah. when I, from the beginning, because nobody knows who you are, and you started doing that. A lot of our Hong Kong clients, they have projects in China, but they said. Fine, we'll give you a project in Hong Kong, but you guys have no experience in China. So we're not going to give it to you until you build some experience. So that's how the journey started. And looking back, there's a lot of lessons, uh, but humbling lessons. I think one of the earliest lessons that I had was going, going there often, you thought, okay, I'm you know, educated in the U.S., I, I grew up in Hong Kong, I'm more sophisticated. And you go into the market thinking that, what you think is good and right for them, it's the best. Very quickly you learn that's not the case. Um, I think the biggest lesson I learned from there was humility. Trying to understand why things happen in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Only that, only you, when you realize that, then you can build upon um, that knowledge. And then having the humility to understand, understanding we are always standing on shoulders of giants that have gone before you. And having that respect, I think that 
enables you to learn quicker and then find solutions that are culturally fitting right. and also solving some of their problems. Mm -hmm. It's not just enforcing your ideals on them, but really understanding them and then finding uh, a solution or a design that would benefit everybody and make the society better. I think that's how we learned. The first few years was tough, but once we understand that, uh, things grew quite quickly and, and we were able to get some nice projects. So what's being based in Hong Kong an advantage when you decided to scale to China? Um, having all the knowledge, and the firm by then is already 30-odd years old, so we have enough experience and knowledge and, and professional sort of approaches and, and knowing what's good and bad. Mm -hmm. I think all those is important. And I think Hong Kong also prepared me to be you know, trilingual, uh, Cantonese, Mandarin and English and having a global perspective, but understanding the Chinese culture, the heritage. Right. I think having that combination helped me to navigate uh, what China has to offer. Not only the heritage or the history, but adding on new layer of um, more modernized approach, right. thinking and the way of living, the, the new lifestyle, the, the new way to uh, engage society and the young people and, and to build a better community. So all those things we have learned in Hong Kong and lessons we have learned in Hong Kong, mistakes that we have made here that we can use that experience and do a better job in China. And that has benefited us quite a lot. How do you differentiate your architectural practice with the other architectural practices of Hong Kong? I think our firm, um, on a few fronts, I think we always interested in the humanity side of design. Mm -hmm. um, the aesthetic is very important, you have to look pretty, you have to look good, but there's a whole dimension of how the user engages the space, how the developer, when they invest in a building, that makes sure that it's of good performance. Mm -hmm. And that passion leads to us to commit very early on on sustainability. Uh, we started the journey very early um, in 2006, when our first um, approach to sustainability design mm -hmm. wasn't telling the client what we can do, but asking the cleaning ladies to come in the morning and note down who then switch off the lights, their computer and the air conditioning and so on and so forth. Because we believe that change will only happen when you change your own behavior. Right. And by doing that, then everybody realized, oh, we are very serious about sustainability, not just lip service, but we have to practice it. It's a lifestyle change, a commitment. So by doing that, we started doing lectures, we're offering trainings and um, giving a lot of training for our colleagues to take exams that they can be qualified as a sustainability designer. And only through education that they learn what is sustainability. And by spending almost 18 months preparing the foundation that everybody starts to increase their knowledge, then we can start telling people what we can do with their project to be more mm -hmm. sustainable. And that luckily also the timing, I think we're quite good, mm -hmm. that the whole world start to realize we can't do, you know, the carbon footprint, is, it's, it's really getting big, the global warming is happening, right. we need to do something, and there's mm -hmm. an urgency to that. So we managed to be uh, good timing, but our preparation work paid off. So. so the many buildings that you have built in Hong mm -hmm. Kong, how have you managed to put that orientation towards being environment friendly, and sustainability into them? Well, very often people think when they talk about sustainable design, they always think of the bells and whistles, right? right? Oh, the, can we do a photovoltaic uh, cells or different technology? But I think that comes later. Mm -hmm. What we want to advocate is how do you maximize something that is free? Yes. Right, shading, 
uh, 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 orientation of the building. When you design it right, let's just say, if you have a big window facing west, that room is get really hot. So can you maybe design it to be not so west-facing? But if that happened to have a, a, a beautiful waterfront, then of course you want that view. Then we can think about technology, whether we can put shading devices, we can have better performing glass that lets in daylight but not the heat. That come later, but we always say maximizing the, the what's free, so right. passive design. Mm -hmm. If you get the ventilation right, you get the shading right, orientation right, then the whole building would use less energy to be comfortable. Okay. Then that's a great start. So tell us about a failure that helped you emerge stronger. Oh, so many. Um, I think even going to China in the beginning, uh, not knowing how to engage with the client, uh, getting cheated <laughs> early on, so you know, not getting paid. So you learn through that. Um, Another story, I, I started, very early on I started, um, I know that the company needs to have some sort of retreat to align our strategic movement. Mm -hmm. I hire a consultant, but that consultant didn't really understand our firm. I see. He wanted to, he wanted to push his idea to us, which created a lot of chaos. So that retreat was an utter failure. Okay. But I learned that, oh, well, I think I could have say, oh, retreat is no good, let's not do it. But what I've learned from that experience is, okay, maybe I shouldn't get someone who doesn't understand to run the retreat, but what I've learned, it was a great communication platform. Mm -hmm. After that retreat, everybody speaks the same lingual language terminology, so I can see the benefit of it. Right. But it was run in, in, incorrectly. Mm -hmm. So the following year, I actually took up to run that retreat and that started the process of uh, transforming the company and growing the company. But you know, that one, I think my dad was like, you spent so much money getting someone in and didn't work. So I got a lot of heat for that, but I see, I always say every failure is an opportunity to learn. If you own that failure and you learn from it, then it becomes invaluable in investment. So. That's how I treat failure. That's why I always love to try new things. And if it fails, then you learn something from it, then you can be a better person, a better experience. And those experiences can be shared, not just from business, but personal experience with your friends, right. with, with children. You know, it's always great to share stories. And only when you expose yourself to failure, then you have stories. Absolutely. Right? And stories are essential on how we grow and learn. So that's how I see it. So has Hong Kong been as a base for your business? I think Hong Kong is phenomenal. I love this city. Um, for us as architects, um, Hong Kong is unique because it's super high density mm -hmm. and has an incredible infrastructure. How um, the MTR, mm -hmm. how it moves so many people every day. I can't imagine the city function without uh, the MTR system. So we are able to design high density environment that are healthy, um, that are very efficient mm -hmm. and actually quite decent. Um, I often get into discussion with uh, some of our, my friends in, in, in overseas and they say, oh, super tall buildings are no good, it's cold, it doesn't engage any community. We much prefer the white picket fence houses. I was like, really, when was the last time you really talked to your neighbor? 
yeah, I talked to him a month ago. So not really, but when you live in an apartment building, for me, you know, I take the lift, go down, and I see my neighbors. And you say hi every morning, and I know quite a few of my neighbors, and we become friends. The kids become friends. You actually have a pretty tight, close community when it's vertically stacked up. So I would argue that it's not so much um, how far and how big of a space you have, it's how engaging that you can create the space and create a sense of community. Yes. Uh, a lot of Hong Kong development, they have clubhouses, mm -hmm. and that become a little community center where families from different apartment blocks can meet and greet. Um, furthermore, our, actually our MTR system allow us to have very efficient public transport, and that's super low carbon footprint. In fact, I believe Hong Kong has the lowest carbon footprint in the world on really? transportation. Mm. A lot of people don't own cars. We don't have to own cars yes. because the public system is so good with taxi, buses, um, trains, underground, and even Uber. Who needs a car? Right. So we have a pretty green, uh, sustainable sort of mobility platform here. Mm -hmm. So amongst all the projects that your company has done mm -hmm. for Hong Kong, which one of it is your favorite? I know wow. you have done so many. That's so hard to say because... What about the, the new... The C2 Oracle? Center? Yes, that yeah, that one is certainly one of our... Um, That's gorgeous. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful building. It really is. It's, How it's, long did it take to get built? Um, the construction took about four years. Um, the whole process about just over five years. We we were um, part of we we joined venture with another um, Canadian ar Chinese architect, mm -hmm. and together we entered the design competition. And there were six firms, all big boys, global, you know, star architects. And we are so happy that our design won the competition. Yeah. Um, I think one of the winning feature of the design is that we created a very beautiful public space at the bottom at the entry plaza right. and we lifted the theater oh. up on the top floor and that created that beautiful space that is naturally ventilated right. and is covered and hong kong i think apart from the uh, hsbc headquarters there are no other covered public space I think we should advocate for more because Hong Kong weather, you know, summer is pretty hot. Yes. So once you put shading, shading is free, um, and natural ventilation, the space actually is quite nice, even in summertime. So I think we need more of those spaces. But that project was um, something we're very proud of, uh, uh, a, a thousand-seat theater that promotes uh, Chinese opera. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's one of the UNESCO heritage performances. and. Oh. And we want yes. to promote that art form and, and create a legacy, mm -hmm. not just for the existing uh, audience, but develop new audiences, a new way to perform that art form. So, yeah, very proud, very happy. And then we have lately finished the Victoria Dockside project, which is okay. a very large scale development as well. Right. So, you know, we have done quite a few. So you're very active in the Hong Kong cultural scene. Tell us something about your involvement there. Well, um, I'm involved with the Hong Kong Arts Center, mm -hmm. which is um, a small NGO that we've been promoting arts for the last 50 years in Hong Kong. In fact, a lot of uh, people my generation, when I was a kid, I go to the Arts Center to learn music, or drawing or painting, and, and we continue to do that role uh, throughout Hong Kong. We have an art school that mm -hmm. teaches the art program. Uh, the art center hosts exhibition and uh, uh, performances, a movie. Uh, so we have done quite a lot in Hong Kong as really the nonprofit um, organization that have been promoting arts 
across different mediums and across different sort of uh, uh, social um, classes. So it's... How wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's a great little... Um, Your humanistic side gets reflected there. It's a, I think it's important. Um, I think arts and sports are a very important part of any society because mm. not everybody academically can do well, become lawyers, doctors or bankers uh, or architects. But then sports and, and these art performances brings in uh, a different aspects of life and also create a lot of employment and, and engagement with uh, people that are just not so good at the books. But it's, it's, it can be a great way to, to export to the world that, you know, that art form, that performance. You have stage designer, you have performer, you have script writers. Right. So, there's a whole other part of um, the society that they can offer. Um, you really, I think it's important to create a more balanced and happier society. So what advice would you give to a young 22-year-old looking to become an architect? I think it's important to be sensitive with the environment and understand people because people's behavior drives the design ultimately, right? Yeah. Um, so when you understand that, then you understand the local culture, the climate mm -hmm. is very important. And then have a passion for the arts that also helps to inspire you to do beautiful things. Um, but I think having an interest on the fabric of how the city is created and then the people, how the two relate. And often when you understand these two aspects, then you, then you can create some pretty amazing spaces and experiences for the, for the, for the city. So what's next for Bryant? Where do you see yourself in the next five to ten years? I think it's technology is a big thing right now. Um, I'm seeing that technology is changing how we behave, mm -hmm. how we live, mm -hmm. um, as simple as how we shop. Yes. Right nowadays, most of our shopping is online. Right? Yes. Then, for for instance, shopping mall what it should be. What's the future of shopping? And that is shifting and changing. Right. So. I th I'm seeing there's a lot of changes going to take place and also the social engagement, how people want to live is different, right. how community gets together is different, how school, how people learn is different, um, particularly what we're going through in the world right now. Everybody is doing Zoom lessons or e-learning. Oh, yes. So the question of how do we learn? How do children learn? What should the school now be designed that cater for not only these events, but I think to ask a fundamental question, how a classroom should be. Right. So we have done a few schools in Hong Kong that are super flexible. We don't have a fixed classroom. Mm -hmm. The room can be reconfigured quite quickly because the subject matter, the content is changed quite quickly and the engagement with the student is different. I see. So I think it's a new horizon, how we live, work, entertain, learn, um, will be all different. So I think it's a huge opportunity for us as architects, as designers, to rethink mm -hmm. how the future should be and new city, how it should be. So it's exciting time. How interesting, Brian. Yeah. All right, Brian. Are you ready okay. for a rapid fire question, Brian? Absolutely. Shoot Let's away. Getting to know Brian's Hong Kong story in a bit more fun way. All right. Brian's favorite casual and formal dining place in Hong Kong. There are so many. Um, Flower Drum nearby here, Samsung, uh, The Pond, uh, Louise. So these are for your formal? My, oh, Louise is formal, Belong is formal, and then casual um, from your Cha Tan Tang, you know, the, yes, the local, the local. 
love that. Um, and then right near my office, Sam Sang Fo Tai, uh, a flower drum for Chinese food. And then uh, I go to the pond quite a bit as well. So your favorite way to hang loose with friends in Hong Kong? The Pulse down in Repulse Bay. Really? Uh, that seems to be a good hangout on the beach and I'm quite outdoorsy so being promenade, being on the outdoor, grab a drink, go to the beach or just hang out there. I, I Your favorite that. hobby? Oh gosh. <laughs> Photography, running, swimming, biking. Three words that describe Brian's Hong Kong life. Family, mm -hmm. um, passion and Density. Density? Mm. What does that mean? That means you can do a lot of things in a very short time with a very short distance. Okay. And I love this vibrancy of Hong Kong when things have close proximity, but right. yet you have enough public space and things that you can move around. But being close with everyone and 15 minutes drive, you get to get everything done. I think that's unique for Hong Kong. Okay. And your, your favorite solitary activity? Cycling. Or running, I think these two are always... Uh, okay. What are you most proud of as a Hong Konger? Being multicultural. Mm -hmm. Understanding East and West, um, and understanding the diversity that exists between different cultures. I think being in Hong Kong, you really get to experience from not just the Chinese or the Western, there's the, the Indian pocket, there's all these other minority pockets that exist in Hong Kong that very often don't get touched upon, but that's the gem, I think. Just everybody enjoying the city, working together and, and, and bringing things that, that food that are so multiculturally diverse. You go to a local Ta Tan Hang, you have East and West immediately. Right. So I think that diversity is, is unique to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as a business leader, mm -hmm. what would you tell the global business leaders and policymakers? Why should they engage with Hong Kong? I think Hong Kong is the best foundation uh, to launch any business globally. Uh, we have common law, we have a very transparent legal and accounting system, we have great financial capital system, and apart from that, we're close proximity to the biggest market, China, India, mm -hmm. And then, uh, most importantly, where else can you go that you have the city, the beaches, and the mountains all within 15 minutes of your radius, and, and the weather here is great. You don't have to shuffle snow. Right. And it's, I think it's the best of everything. It's, it's, it's proximity. We have beautiful harbor. You want to go hiking, it's 15 minutes away. You want to go swimming, and the beach is 15 minutes away. And you have access to the world's best talent, uh, great sort of you know, civic society, and, and it's a safe place. Well, thank you so much, well, thank Brian, you. for coming to our show, and we wish you all the very best in all your future endeavors. Thank you. Thank you so much, Naya. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we bring you yet another fascinating story on dreams, passion, and your Hong Kong story.